everybody to the next interesting episode of the Renegade Show. And today I have a really special guest with me. He's a friend of mine that actually got introduced to me by all things my children. They were looking for something to actually help them improve their public speaking and, and came across this uh, piece of software that was, was developed by this interesting young man from, from Tanzania. His name is Danish. And in preparation for this uh, interview, I realized that his TED Talk had garnered more than 2 million uh, users or viewers up to this point. So I'm really excited to have Danish join us on the podcast today to talk about his journey, his mission, and how his business has evolved. So welcome to the pod, Danish. Thank you so much for having me. Excited to be here. Great. And I'm excited to have you here. So maybe uh, to start off, why don't we uh, talk about uh, yourself and your mission and how did you come about building this, uh, this business and really the, 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 the social enterprise that you're trying to solve in the world? When founders start a business, there's always those success stories when founders are trying to solve their own pain point. Mm-hmm. And it was the same for me. I, you will not believe it, but had one of the biggest fears in public speaking. I was terrified. And when I say public speaking, I don't just mean speaking in front of a stage. I mean job interviews. I mean presenting at work. I mean going to networking events and saying, hi, I'm Danish, and what do you do? Everything in those avenues for me was super difficult. And it didn't hit me until one day one of my managers pulled me aside and she's like, Danish, you can be the smartest engineer in the room, but if you don't learn how to present confidently, you're putting a glass ceiling on your head. You'll never be able to become a manager. You'll never become a leader. And I said, what should I do? And she recommended I join this public speaking club called Toastmasters, Mm -hmm. which is one of the greatest gifts in my life. I went there religiously week after week, and I realized that this is actually a learnable skill. Anyone can master communication skills. And when you do, you open up so many doors for yourself. I felt like I was getting more buy-in for my ideas. I felt like I was finally getting heard. And being heard and listened to is such a great thing that human beings crave for. And when I found it, I told all my friends, hey, go to Toastmasters. You will also get that. But people, I don't know if they were lazy, they didn't trust it. They didn't go for that. So I thought, how do I bring Toastmasters to them? And that's, that was the inception for creating Ori. Toastmaster-like app that's in your pocket, specifically designed for millennials to actually improve their communication skills. Yeah. And when I was, uh, when I was researching the topic, people seem to say that I, I, I think one of the biggest fear or the number two biggest fear is actually public speaking. I think the, the first one is, I, I, could, I couldn't remember what the first one was, but it, it was really public speaking. But what I want to understand is how did you go from scratching your own itch, right? Solving your own problem to a journey that basically required you to go and convince venture capital employees and customers to to be on this journey what what prompted this i think as founders there's so many things to focus on but i would highly highly suggest 
to focus on just one thing and that is your customers if you can improve the life of a hundred people through your initial mvp then you're on to something and if you can do that and you're disciplined to that then money comes employees come team comes venture capitalists would come of course that is a little bit of an exaggeration but there's deep meaning to that if you focus on that then it becomes much more easier to attract the right talent of course you have to look for them but it makes it 10 times easier yeah and when we talk about engineering right there's a lot of people that speak around engineering and mvp engineering a product you know building the functionality that you want to see in the world but when we also looked at looking at commitments whether it's from customers or vcs or funding or employees it's a different kind of engineering you need to be able to engineer commitments and commitments of all kinds, whether it's sweat equity, whether it's actual equity, actual or money. How did you, as, as a first time founder, how did you learn the art of engineering commitments? It's by making mistakes. <laughs> <laughs> One thing that I'm not afraid of is trying, trying and failing. And if I fail, I'll try again. So as a first time founder, there is no guidebook. I didn't even have the right mentors at the very beginning. So I would just make mistakes. I would just try things. And that's the biggest thing I would suggest. Just try. And if you mm -hmm. fail, get up. And how, how long have you been on this journey? How many years has it been? It's been three and a half years now. Three and a half years. And how did you go from the idea all the way to where you are today? What, was the, what, were, what were the highlights of those journeys? Uh, if you can give us a chronology of the history. So once you have the idea, it's all about building your MVP. And your MVP is that first product that you can put in the hands of customers. And you're never too early. The faster you can do that, the better it is. So we launched our MVP around 2017 March mm -hmm. in the App Store. And that started getting some, some traction. And we realized, okay, this might be something that we can actually explore. So from that first MVP, going to 100 users, 500 users, 1,000 users, climbing that rank was also very, very exciting for us. Mm -hmm. And then finally, even getting into an accelerator program, Techstars, which is one of the best accelerators in the world, being part of that for three months was true acceleration for us. It really felt like nine months went by. We all grew as a team. Our product grew. Our customers grew. And then at the end of the program, we managed to raise some venture capital money, some seed round, and that allowed us to scale even further. Mm -hmm. And here we are today where we're still exploring, still trying to grow, still trying to make our customers' lives better. And uh, it looked like uh, when you told the story, it looked like it was a straight trajectory. And you also talk about mistakes. I want to talk to you about a classic phenomenon that we see a lot of first-time founders face. They, there is a very tight uh, integration between the founder and the startup that they're building. And sometimes we've seen in history that there is this idea of product market fit. But sometimes there is also this idea around founder market or founder product fit, where the, the founder could be effectively a, a butter knife trying to saw through uh, a really hard granite. And maybe it, the, the founder is destined to be a founder, 
but the product or the timing is not good for them or not right for them. And if they pivot, they could actually still continue to be a founder, but at a product and a market that was actually ideal for them. So in terms of learning from your mistakes, when do you, there is the, the product and the market that you're going after is not a fit for you. And no matter how hard you use that butter knife to cut through that marble, you're not getting that feedback loop that you need. When is it time to cut it, call it quits? And when is it time to pivot? Because at the end of the day, most founders cannot decouple that identity of a founder with the business that they're building. What's your perspective on that? First thing, I think this is one of the most important points in entrepreneurship. So thank you for putting it out there. It's, it's so hard for founders to decouple from the idea. And there's literally something called founder market or founder product fit. And sometimes the founders are not suit, built right for this, in this pathway. The way I think of it is, you need to follow a disciplined market validation approach. Mm-hmm. And we're lucky it's 2020. There's tons of frameworks out there. I think two, three that I would highly recommend is number one, lean startup. If you look at the business model canvas through Steve Blank and Eric Ries, they have clear ways of validating a market and a product and growth. Another one that we also liked was from Ash Moreya. I think it's called Running Lean. And then the third one that we also like is called ODI, Outcome Driven Innovation. Mm-hmm. And that's by a firm called Strategen. And it builds upon the foundations built by Clayton Christensen in his book, Competing Against Luck and Jobs to Be Done Framework. So if you follow these frameworks, and again, choose one of them, you don't have to do all three. I think we made one of those mistakes where we tried all three. That's why I know about all three. But choose one of the frameworks and follow it until you hit the wall. And from my experience, I think you can hit that wall within six to eight months. If you have not found anything, it's time to either pivot or decide, hey, this is not for me. Mm, Interesting. Because I think what the point you're trying to bring up is being a founder is really who you are. It's not what you do. And a lot of founders make that mistake. They, they conflate what they do to being a founder. The identity of a founder is someone who takes resources and gives it value. And, but the business may not be who they are. It's what they do. And exactly. having this framework. Go ahead. Yeah. Exactly. Founder is who you are. It's your mindset. It is this innate ability in a human being to look at the world around them and to find problems and come up with solutions Mm -hmm. and come up with solutions that can help improve your customers' lives. That is what a founder is. Now that founder could be working in a big company like AT&T. They can still be a founder because they have that entrepreneurial mindset or they can be running their own startup. So that's a great thing. You need to separate the two ideas. And, and I like the fact that you brought up this idea of you could be a founder working in a company like AT&T. And this idea of this, what we call intrapreneurship, there are people who may be into their careers. They have, a, they have a mortgage, they have children, but they also have this fire of entrepreneurship in, them, in themselves. And although they may not want to take the risk 
of what we call, you know, the ramen capital, right? They're, they're just sweat and ramen and building their business. There is an ability for individuals uh, to actually be an intrapreneur within, within their own organization. Can you, can you speak to how can someone know whether they have those intrapreneur, entrepreneur, founder capabilities within themselves? <laughs> That's a very hard question. I think for every human being, it might be different. Mm-hmm. At least for me, it was that feeling of I am not satisfied in a nine to five job or that could be one or the other one, which is, Hey, wherever I go, I'm always seeing problems and my mind is always thinking of solutions. What if I could be the one to actually solve this problem out there? Mm -hmm. Number three could be, Hey, I have that tenacity. I have that grit. I have that perseverance to just work, work, and work until I build something. Mm-hmm. And I would even add one more, which is you are a great leader. A great leader is a great storyteller. A great leader is a great communicator. A great leader can build brands and can bring a mission statement together that can actually attract people because you need that as a founder also. So if you have one or two of these things, then you are built to be a founder. Yeah. And are you only limited to coming out and starting your own enterprise? Or do you believe that this idea of intrapreneurship, being a founder and entrepreneur within a bigger machine, is that possible? What's your perspective on that? 100%. So even when I mentioned you're out there looking for problems, you could Mm -hmm. be working at Comcast or IBM. And Mm -hmm. inside there, you're looking at problems and saying, hey, I think I can improve these operational efficiencies and save my company a million dollars. That is an entrepreneur. And you will get noticed if you act on those things. Instead of just holding it deep inside your head, act on them, you will be in the light. You will see your career trajectory go up like a rocket ship. And this is an interesting idea because as we tape this session, we're in the midst of one of probably a once in a generation pandemic in a hundred years. And there's a lot of fear and insecurity that's happening. No one, under, no one knows whether this is going to be a V-shaped recovery, a U-shaped recovery, an L-shaped recovery. And everyone is clamoring and, and really batting down the hatches for the worst. And so within uh, big organizations, there may be a tendency for some employees to play it safe to play the safe card, right? Because of the situation, they don't want to rise to the top. As much as rising to the top will allow you to get all the nourishment from the sunlight, you could get burned like Icarus flying too close to the sun. What's your point of view in trying to unleash that entrepreneurship, those, those risk-taking, those, those uh, kind of skills, but in a wartime environment? What's your perspective around that? So I think, Kevin, you have more experience with me in the corporate world. I, mm-hmm. from, from graduation, I just started this company. But from what I know, corporate world, you have to play your cards right. There is mm-hmm. bureaucracy. There is political power. There is who and what can come into an effect. And I think from what you're saying, you have to be careful. You shouldn't shine the light too bright on yourself. Otherwise, <laughs> you might be pushed down by people who might not want you to climb. And, and I, that, go ahead. I hear that. I hear that from you. 
-hmm. But I would challenge that because there's always those who are going to hold you down, even in the real world. Mm -hmm. But there will be always those who will be your cheerleaders. And you need to find the cheerleaders. You need to find your sponsors. And inside the company, especially if it's a big company, there are many executive sponsors who might be aligned to what you're looking to do. You just have to find the right person. And you hit the nail on the spot. I think from my experience now being an entrepreneur myself and being in the corporate world all these years, it's really that idea of finding sponsorship. I think sponsorship is so important in these day and age. And just like if you were out in the world producing a product, there are two things that you need. You need sponsorship, whether it's a very uh, small group of evangelical fan base or users or even sponsorship in somebody who's mentoring you and supporting you along that way. So sponsorship and finding a user base, I would say would be the similarities when starting, starting an entrepreneurship or being an intrapreneur. I believe those are actually two, two areas that are really similar. And you're right, in this, in this time and age, it's already dangerous to take risk in, in peacetime, but in wartime, I believe it's all the more reason that a company needs to innovate right? And respond to the new times. Exactly. And talking about the age we are in today, whenever there is chaos, chaos, Mm -hmm. like we have today, whenever we have uncertainty, those are best of both worlds. They are good times and bad times at the same time. It is bad time for those who don't want to change, but this is an ideal good time for those who want to change and who want to adapt and who want to build a new world with what we have today and they will thrive. Yeah. As we move on to the next uh, segment of this conversation, I want to touch a little bit about a subject that that's not really talked about in Silicon Valley or even within the venture community, is this idea of how venture capital works with first-time founders. And, and the, the point I, I want to kind of have a, a discussion with you is here you have very young founders, someone like you or even someone out of school, and they're, they're coming out and they're building this, this really big franchise is what they hope to be a you know, venture-backed, venture-scale franchise. And, and sometimes when, when VCs see or even anyone in the industry see this capability, they start to pump millions and millions of dollars into these fledgling startups. And often than not, it's like taking a very young pilot, putting them into a $100 million plane and then telling them go fly, right? Without the right mentorship, without the right emotional support, without the right coaching, even without the right guidance. And we see a lot of ideas of growth at any cost. So as you begun your journey and you've, you are fortunate enough to actually have some venture scale support, how did you reconcile having that much money and that much power and that much support and, and coming off without the appropriate experience, how did you reconcile with that? <laughs> it is very true. When you have so much money in the bank, you tend to make more mistakes. You, you can become a little bit careless. But us as founders, right? Mm-hmm. Leave the business aside. If you look at us as founders from our backgrounds, we have always been money-minded and been very prudent in our way of living. From our, from our beginnings of life, from our, the way our family culture brought us up. So even though we have other people's money today, we still think of it as our money. Mm. When we are doing an Uber ride to get from somewhere to the other, 
I still tend to do an Uber X or Uber pool. If I'm flying, I'll still spend that extra 15 minutes that it might take to find a cheaper flight than the one that might be something if I didn't spend that time and effort and just book random flight. So you have to be prudent. And those things are just tiny examples, but they actually propagate a lot in your business decisions, who you hire, how much you pay, what softwares you're purchasing, where do you want to invest in growth? All of those decisions get impacted based on the foundational elements on who you are as a founder. So you talk about values then, your values, how you were brought up, basically guided you on how you would be good stewards of capital. Yes, yes. And, and a good skill of a founder is to be a good steward of capital because that money is not yours. It's mm-hmm. hard earned money from other people who are taking a bet in you. Mm-hmm. It doesn't matter if they have billion dollars in their bank. They're still taking part of their money and giving it to you to support your dream and your goals. And you have to be very respectful and thankful for that. It's interesting because in this, in this, in this entrepreneurship world, since the, I would say that the movie, the social network came out, there's a lot of glamorization or Hollywoodization of entrepreneurship. And you've get a lot of people celebrating running press releases and talking about their seed or series A or series B funding as if they had gone and conquered the world. But the reality is, if you think about it, it's the equivalent of someone taking a mortgage on their house and then putting a PR press release on that. So it's very refreshing to hear you having fortunate enough to be part of that steward of good capital, but having good values that's, that's, that's holding you true to what you were being entrusted for. And, and so if you were to give uh, some advice to people who are beginning this journey and may not have necessarily had that values instilled in them, what would you advise them to think about as they, they bring on this journey? There is so much advice, right? Mm-hmm. <laughs> and advice, I like to, from one of my mentors, like the way he puts it, mm-hmm. we're in the anti-advice business. We can't give advice as founders. All we can do is say how I did it. Yeah. But the way I look at it is the focus is always on the customer, right? At the end of the day, we want to help improve the lives of our users. We want to help them become better communicators more confident human beings and therefore open doors for them. And in order to work and act on that mission, I need resources. I need that capital. And that capital has to last me a long period of time. And if I'm being held accountable by my end customers, then that pressure is going to channel through me in maintaining the kind of resources I have and not being wasteful or mindless about that. Mm-hmm. Interesting. And so I think I want to probably end with how you think about culture and people and, and customers. A lot of, a lot, there's a lot of theses around that you have to put the customer in the center of everything and the customer is everything. Then there's another thesis of our people is our greatest asset. How do you balance the both between customer and people, and then building a culture that you want to see uh, propagate in Ori. How's your, what's your principles when you were thinking about building this business? Did you think about culture as one of your uh, building principles or did it organically grow as you evolved? I think I, I don't think I, I'm, I'm, I purposely thought of the culture Mm -hmm. because everyone says culture is such a big thing 
for your startup, for your company. But I'm, I'm split. There are two philosophies around culture. Mm-hmm. Number one, you have to actively work on it for it to be the case from your first employee. And there's the other culture philosophy, which is, look, just worry about your day-to-day operational stuff. Be, do the best for your customers. And then your culture will ultimately grow and something you worry about when you've grown past the 10 employee mark. Mm-hmm. I'm actually very split. I'm not sure what the right strategy is. Mm-hmm. I can tell you we've done best of both. We have focused a little bit on our culture, but at the same time, we think of it as a secondary thing to our day-to-day operations. So I, I don't have the right advice there. I think it would be based on what you feel, based on how your team is growing. But definitely, there are some no-nos for culture. Mm-hmm. Do not hire people <laughs> who, are, who can spoil, who, who people are not happy with. We have had people in the past where I would hear complaints from employees like, hey, I don't like this person. And as soon as you start hearing that from two or three other employees, you have someone who can be an anti-culture person for your business. You need to get rid of them. Yeah. And I also noticed that you are by, by design a uh, geographically distributed organization. So it's apt that it's interesting that the CIO couldn't drive digital, the CEO couldn't drive digital, but COVID has driven digital across the entire world in one fell swoop. So how, what are the hacks or the tips that you found being most useful running a remote workforce? Having, having your humans, your employees, and, be, and making sure that their health and well-being is good, I think is number one. Because as human beings, we need connection. We crave human connection. We don't do well when we're stuck at home without human connection. So if you can think of that and put that at the center, the health and well-being, that is the foundation of having a good remote culture. If that your employees are talking, you have that culture of talking about well-being, nutrition, sleep, exercise, mental health. If you can openly talk about those things and build that into your culture, you're mm-hmm. going to do a great service to building a remote team. And the other big thing about remote team is making sure people have a sense of direction. And that comes with good leadership. It comes with having a good roadmap of what your product is, what the problems your product solves for, and how is it improving your people's lives. If you have given them that sense, then it's easy to work, no matter if you're distributed or in the same office space. So I think those two are the big things. A health and wellness culture, mm-hmm. you're treating your people as humans. And number two, you have a great sense of direction and vision and mission for your company. Great. So as we end uh, the session today, what's your wish to all the people who are trying to strike their own path, the renegades who want to build the world they want to see out there? What's your wish for them? Dear renegades, the world has so many challenges and opportunities. If you feel like you you wanted to be born in the era of let's say Isaac Newton. That was one of my biggest wishes. I wish I was born in 1600s. I could have invented so many things, but no, the more the world grows, the more inventions come out, the more challenges come out, the more opportunities there are for us as founders and renegades to solve for, to help improve the life of other peoples. So don't limit yourself. 
know that there is an opportunity out there that you can help solve. And you have to take the plunge. You have to take the risk. You can't get the best of both worlds. You can't have one foot in a safety zone and one foot out there. You have to make a decision in your life where, hey, if I am looking for financial freedom, if I am looking to have an impact that's bigger than what I might have today, you have to take that risk. And don't take that risk too early also. Try and validate your idea. Try and validate your product, whether you're working in the business or working for your own business validate before you devote all your resources well well and wise words to our listeners with that thank you very much for uh, being on the pod danish and uh, bye bye to our guests